This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on asthma in adults. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Asthma is common in adults. The prevalence of asthma in adults is between 7 and 10%, and it can cause a range of problems from reduced quality of life to hospital admissions. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Dr. Lauren Eggert, who's Clinical Assistant Professor at the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine, Stanford University School of Medicine. And importantly, Lauren is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Lauren, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you, what exactly is asthma? Asthma at its core is a chronic inflammatory airways disease. Uh, And I'd say the hallmark of the disease is a uh, reversible airway obstruction. So asthma is defined by episodes of cough, wheezing, shortness of breath in response to triggers, and you have variable or reversible airway obstruction, but at the end of the day, uh, you go back to normal. Okay, thank you. And how do you make the diagnosis? So I think in asthma, diagnosis is one of the trickiest parts. So in general, you need a compatible clinical history, uh, which includes, you know, wheezing, cough, shortness of breath in response to triggers. And then they also ask that you have a uh, evidence of airway obstruction. So at least at one point, you should have on your spirometry, a evidence of an FEV1 to FBC ratio of less than 70%. And then evidence of excessive uh, variability. So that can be measured by peak flow. That could be measured in different spirometries or other ways that show just excessive airway variability um, and reversibility. So, um, you know, one thing we look at on spirometry is that we uh, give patients a bronchodilator with albuterol and we look for a 12% or 200cc change. And that's suggestive of asthma or bronchodilator response, uh, an excessive airway, you know, reversibility or variability. Sometimes it can be tricky and uh, we need to use more provocative testing, such as a methacholine challenge or other provocative testing to try and better elucidate uh, the diagnosis. Thank you. Should all patients have spirometry? Oh, that's a tricky one. Uh, (laughs) I love spirometry. It's a very cheap, easy, uh, you know, test. Uh, But unfortunately, currently, it's not widely available. And, you know, although now there's several FDA approved uh, home spirometers for use at home that are more portable and easy to use, I do think we still don't recommend screening for asthma or screening for obstructive lung diseases, but I do feel that, you know, if you have symptoms suggestive of asthma or obstructive airways disease, if you have a cough, you know, that lasts more than six to eight weeks, if you have shortness of breath, be it intermittent or chronic, 
If you have wheezing or abnormal lung sounds, the first step is getting spirometry. That gives us a lot of information, and I do think uh, that's an important first step if you do have respiratory symptoms. Okay, thank you. Tell us about recent advances in diagnosis, if there have been any. I'd say that diagnosis has pretty much been the same for years. I don't think there's many recent advances in diagnosis. I think there's a push um, towards, you know, confirming diagnosis. As they say, all that wheezes is not asthma. And I feel like, you know, as a asthma specialist, I get sent a lot of patients for severe asthma. And it's not, you know, I'd say at least 40% aren't you know, I really, at the end of the day, don't think that their main cause of their symptoms is asthma. And this goes back to, you know, the trickiness and the, and the intricacies of diagnosis, that it's not always super easy to make the diagnosis and not all, you know, you're not always going to have all the pieces in place. So it takes, you know, some experience and clinical judgment. But I guess the biggest thing is, you know, I don't say, wouldn't say there's advances in diagnosis, but definitely a push for doing provocative testing just to, you know, better confirm or uh, the diagnosis. Okay, thank you. Those 40%, what, what do they have if they don't have asthma? So there's a lot of, uh, you know, asthma has a lot of comorbidities and mimickers. I see a lot of vocal cord dysfunction. I think, you know, there's variability in the literature, but a lot of patients, um, we think that uh, up to 20, 25% of patients with asthma either have comorbid vocal cord dysfunction or have vocal cord dysfunction. Uh, we see, I see other diseases like bronchiectasis, vasculitides can mimic asthma, COPD, uh, in former smokers, or even now with climate change and things, up to 20-25% of COPD is caused by longstanding asthma and other non-smoking causes. Uh, heart failure is very commonly seen as asthma. You can get wheezing with fluid overload. And um, in a lot of cases, it's just unexplained dyspnea that kind of gets attributed to asthma. That's, you know, at the end of the day, I can't say the asthma is what's causing their dyspnea or their shortness of breath. Okay, thank you. That, that's, that's really helpful. And we've already moved on to the next question, which is about pitfalls in diagnosis. Are, are there other pitfalls in diagnosis that we haven't mentioned already? I wouldn't say pitfalls, but I would say just, you know, as I mentioned before, the importance of provocative testing when the diagnosis is not unclear. Uh, what we primarily do here in the States is methacholine challenge testing, where we give you a respiratory irritant and we measure the FEV1 uh, after serial increase in doses of this to see if there's a decrease in the FEV1 in a response. Um, I think it's important to interpret the findings uh, in context because even a normal patient at the highest dose is going to have some bronchial reactivity. And a lot of conditions like allergic rhinitis or, um, you know, eosinophilic bronchitis, other things can give you a positive result. So it's not, it's a very sensitive test. Um, it's not super specific. I think the best role it has is for its negative predictive value or ruling out asthma. If you have a normal test, you 
I feel pretty confident you don't have asthma. But I think it's when you have a positive test, you know, interpreting that in context. Okay. Thank you. And and is it a safe test? In general, it's a very safe test. I would say, you know, for anybody with uncontrolled or active cardiac disease or very difficult to control or uncontrolled asthma or other, you know, uncontrolled medical comorbidities, I would avoid it. Um, but for most patients, it's pretty safe. Okay. Thank you. Let's move on to management. What's the mainstay? Of management. Oh, so this is where things get exciting. So there's been a lot of uh, innovations in management in the last, you know, 10 years. For, you know, 50 years ago, when, you know, asthma was in its infancy, it was thought of, of a disease purely of bronchoconstriction. So, you know, in response to some trigger, cold weather, a cold, the smooth muscle in the airways would tighten up and you would give albuterol and that would, you know, loosen up those muscles and you would breathe better and that was it. But now we really better understand that it's a disease, as I mentioned right at the start, of chronic inflammation. And so the mainstay of treatment is anti-inflammatories, which primarily is in the form of topical corticosteroids applied to the airways. Um, So basically in 2019, GINA The Global Initiative uh, for Asthma, who makes guidelines for asthma management, had a fundamental restructuring, which we talk about in our asthma and adults um, section on the BMJ Best Practice. And now everyone, even the mildest asthmatics, are recommended to have some form of steroid. Thank you. Um, Tell us about further recent advances in management, if you can. So I guess... For mild asthma, the biggest advance has been uh, Symbicort or Budesonide Fomoterol as uh, initial therapy, even for mild intermittent asthma, as well as smart therapy for higher steps of asthma management. So as I was mentioning, the mainstay of therapy is inhaled steroids. And now the recommendation is for even mild asthma that uh, when a patient takes uh, their albuterol, they take some form as well of inhaled steroid. Ideally, you know, we could do single inhaler therapy with budesonide famoterol. It has to be budesonide famoterol because of the particular pharmacokinetics of the famoterol component, which has a short uh, action of onset and then works for a long time. Um, If that's not available, they recommend, uh, the guidelines recommend taking your inhaled corticosteroid whenever you have to take your as needed albuterol. And at the end of the day, you know, the reasoning behind this is that they found that patients who just use albuterol tend to overestimate their asthma control and end up with more exacerbations. Um, So even though this might be more difficult um, for a patient to take two inhalers or, you know, a steroid every time, it's a population-based strategy to decrease the number of asthma exacerbations overall by treating the inflammation um, that's underlying the disease. So I'd say that's part one. Um, And then the fact that you can use at higher steps um, budesonide famoterol as both your maintenance inhaler and your rescue inhaler is also new and exciting. It streamlines um, medication management and makes it easier for patients. 
And there's several studies now, including several in the New England Journal of Medicine, which show that this is a safe and effective strategy um, for preventing exacerbations. Then part three, uh, which is a big topic and one of my favorite topics, is biologics and um, the increasing availability and use of biologics for the treatment of severe asthma. What type of patients might need biologics? So when I'm seeing patients in my specialty asthma clinic, anybody who's on a moderate to high dose inhaled steroid um, with a long-acting beta agonist, plus or minus another controller medicine, and not doing well, having exacerbations, uh, quite symptomatic, decreased lung function, I always start thinking about uh, whether or not they would qualify or benefit from a biologic medication. So um, I will send off a CBC with differential to look for a peripheral eosinophils. I will send off an allergy panel and a total IgE to look for whether or not they have um, environmental allergies and an elevated IgE indicative of an allergic phenotype. And I will start doing phenotyping to see if they would qualify for biologics. At the end of the day, um, I've had a lot of success with biologics and there's, you know, now we've been using them uh, Zolaire since 2003, and the rest since 2015, and they have a very good safety profile. Um, and I've had a lot of success with patients getting them off steroids and decreasing exacerbations. So I feel like I'm pretty aggressive about trying to get biologics for patients um, once they're not doing so well on moderate to high dose steroid and a long acting beta agonist. Okay, thank you. And let's move on now to pitfalls in management. Um, Tell us about common pitfalls in management. I think one of the big pitfalls we have is that when a patient has uncontrolled asthma, you know, or what seems to us to be uncontrolled asthma, that we don't go back and reflect on uh, the diagnosis and inhaler technique and other things that may be affecting their asthma control. I think as physicians, Um, myself included, our first instinct is to just keep adding on more medications. But I think in asthma, especially, that's not always the best strategy. There's we know from big clinical trials in asthma that in our research studies, there's a huge placebo effect. Often just because patients with asthma are in a research study, they do better. And because you know, they're being watched, so they take their inhalers, they take their medications. And we end up not seeing a big effect of our experimental drug because all of a sudden, you know, all the asthmatics are taking their medicines and doing better. So I think it's really important if a patient is not doing well um, to first and foremost reassess the diagnosis, right? As we talked about in the beginning, all that wheezes is not asthma. There's a lot of mimickers. There's a lot of um, you know, things that get misdiagnosed as asthma, because it's pretty easy just to prescribe an inhaler and, you know, go about your business. But I think so first, that is readdress the diagnosis, and make sure you have the right diagnosis. I think two, is really try and get at is the patient actually taking their medications. There's now some programs, you know, in the electronic medical record here, we can see if a patient is refilling their medicines. Um, I think a recent a report just said probably 30% of patients with refractory or difficult to, difficult to control asthma are not adherent with their medications. 
And I've run into issues, especially here in the States, inhalers are very expensive and insurance coverage for inhalers is very poor. So sometimes it takes some time to get out of patients that they're, you know, rationing their inhalers or not using them because of cost issues. So that's important to address. And then inhaler technique. Uh, inhalers are not all super intuitive, especially all the fancy new elliptas and discuses and different things. You know, with your older patients, your younger patients, I mean, even anyone, these are not super intuitive or easy to use. And proper technique is really important for proper medication delivery. So that's something you always need to go over with patients. You know, ask them. There's a lot of YouTube videos. Ask them to speak with their pharmacist. Um, And then again, address comorbidities. Overweight and obesity, we know, increase inflammation and can worsen asthma control, vitamin D deficiency, um, uncontrolled acid reflux. Uh, uncontrolled or unaddressed sleep apnea. So all these things should also be addressed um, in your asthmatic patients who are having trouble with their management. Okay. Last question, which is a question about questions. What other questions do you get asked about this illness? What have we missed? I think what I get from patients a lot is, do I have to be on medications for life? Is this something that I'm going to always have? And I don't have a great answer for patients. You know, asthma is such a heterogeneous disease. We see it develop in infants, and then we see it develop in 70 and 80-year-olds. We know from deep phenotyping that there's multiple different types of asthma. There's obese asthma. There's neutrophilic asthma. There's eosinophilic asthma. There's overlap, COPD asthma overlap. So I think the heterogeneity of the disease makes it very difficult to answer those types of questions. I think, you know, at the end of the day, again, I've said this twice now, it's a disease of chronic inflammation. So I really do ask people to manage it as a chronic disease, you know, take their controller meds, and it's something they're probably going to need to be aware of. But I don't know, you know, children grow out of asthma. I've seen patients who we put on biologics for a few years. And they come off and, you know, they're fine. So I think, you know, it's really hard to tell and it varies person by person. So I think it's important to manage it as a chronic disease, but it's not necessarily that you're going to, you know, have it for life. Things change. Okay, thank you. And what about smoking and asthma? Do you see, ever see patients who who smoke? Yes, we do. And, you know, Uh, That's the first thing I always say. So smoking is the worst thing you can do for your body. It affects, I mean, there's a lot of bad things you can do, but it's definitely one of the worst. It affects every organ system in your body. It increases the risk of asthma attacks and heart disease, strokes, cancer. Um, So definitely, I always, you know, recommend that patients stop smoking. And if they're smoking and recommend they don't smoke, especially if they have airways diseases. I am very aggressive about prescribing um, smoking cessation pharmacotherapy, if needed, and uh, sending patients to counseling. In the US, you know, all 50 states have free quit lines, and there's seven FDA approved Uh, medications for quitting. A combination of the two has been shown to be more effective. So I always try to push for that. And then one of the big things we see in California now that is just something new that I'm having to deal with is uh, the legalization of marijuana. 
So marijuana smoke, although, you know, doesn't have the exact same profile or health effects, smoking any substance into your lungs is not good for asthmatics. You're already inflamed. And so putting particulate matter or things in there, and you know, we don't always know what's in, you know, marijuana that you're smoking can be very um, irritating and really worsen asthma control. So I have to do a lot of education about that as well, because people think, you know, because it's legal and it's not the same as cigarette smoking, that it's okay. Okay. Thank you very much, Lauren. And, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.